All right. Um, today we're going to be reading through Ephesians 1, 1 through 21. Um, if you guys have the book or if you want to read along with me up here. Um, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as fragrant as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, uh, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks. Always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, good morning. So as Natalie read, we pick up uh, at, at the beginning of chapter 5 as Paul kind of keeps going in this, this application part of the letter. Last week was kind of like the, the hinge that, that moved us over. Um, and like, just like we saw last week, these, these commands are kind of the, the outworking of all those things that Paul talked about at the beginning of Ephesians. But before we get into the passage, let's, let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you that you are good and gracious and that you care for your children. That because of Jesus, we can go from, from being your enemies, being children of wrath, to being beloved children of you. And so we pray this morning that you would remind us of the grace you've shown us in Jesus. That you would send your spirit to, to call us to this, this standard that you have for us for living because of what you've done for us. And that you would, you would motivate us to, to walk in, in the good works that you've prepared for us, that we would, we would strive for obedience, we would strive for holiness, because it's what you call us to in your word. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you that you, you loved us and, and gave yourself up for us. So in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Like a lot of passages in, in Paul's letters, and if you just kind of 
flip through the big chunks in Ephesians, it's, it's most of the ones in Ephesians, it starts with the word, therefore. This is Paul tying what he's about to say to everything that he's just said. And so last week, he told us, he said, you know, don't walk as the Gentiles do, because we're not like them anymore. We've been made new, and because we've been made new, we should, we should live like we're made new. And then he gave us some, some specific commands on how to do this. This week, he's going to kind of set the, the positive standard. So last week, it's, you know, don't be like the Gentiles. Instead, we're to be like someone or something else. So when we see it in the first two commands we get. First two commands we get are, are be imitators of God. And the number two is walk in love. So uh, and then the rest of the passage is just kind of like specific ways in which we imitate God and walk in love. But what we got to acknowledge at the beginning is that this is a, a pretty high bar that Paul sets for us. Imitate God and walk in love. Like, these, these, are, these are pretty, pretty difficult commands Paul is throwing out here, right? If you, if you spent any time in the Bible at all, you know that God is different than we are, right? He's, he's way better, and, and we're kind of the worst. And so Paul is saying, like, be like that. Don't be like you are. Be like God and, and walk in love. Love is, is messy. It's, it's difficult. It, it's hard. It, it requires things of us. And Paul is saying, like, this is who you got to be. You got to imitate God and you've got to walk in love. But the good news for us is that these two commands also come with these, these as statements. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. These, these statements tell us how we do these things, how these commands are possible for us. We can imitate him because he's made us his beloved children. We can walk in love because of Christ's love for us and, and what he's done for us. And as I said last week, these, these gospel obligations, these things that we must do because of what Jesus has done for us, they, they flow out of those gospel declarations, those, those good news proclamations of, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The, the imperatives, the, the commands, they flow out of the indicatives. But I want to clarify something. When I say that those like obligations, those good news obligations, they, they, they flow out of the, the good news declarations, I obviously do not mean that it happens automatically. Right? If I'm, if I'm in my house, uh, and I have to be in my house because this building, this, this won't work. If I'm in my house and I go to a faucet and I turn the handle, water comes out. If you do that here... It kind of depends on the faucet you pick. <laughs> but at my house, if I go to the faucet and I turn the handle, water comes out. Other than turning the handle, like, I don't make that happen. Yes, we, we pay our bills and, and all of that. But other people have done lots of work to make sure that when I turn that handle, water comes out. It just kind of happens automatically. It's, it's like magic. But what about an orange? An orange has liquid inside also. But if I want to get that liquid out, I can't just walk up to my kitchen sink and turn the faucet. I have to cut that orange open. I have to, I have to squeeze it. I have to use a juicer. I have to use one of those, those pressy things. And then all of that delicious orange juice comes out. 
When I say that because of what Jesus has done, because of how our hearts are changed, because of who we are in him, that those good news declarations flow outward into good news obligations, what I mean is that it it flows out. Most of the time, the way it flows out is like orange juice. We have to do a whole lot of effort to get what he's done for us outside of us so that other people can see it. But sometimes, like maybe you're in a situation and you normally would have responded with anger, but instead you respond with grace. And then later you're like, who was that person? It was not me. I don't respond like that. Like there are moments where it is like that faucet because of, of the new habits that have been formed in us by the gospel. But, but most of the time, it's like that orange. But the, the point for us is that obedience flows out of what Jesus has done for us. But that obviously doesn't remove our responsibility or the effort required, right? As we've, we've quoted Willard a, a whole lot here, Dallas Willard, he says, the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We can't earn our salvation. But that doesn't mean that, that obedience doesn't take effort from us, right? It's, it's obvious if we think about it even just a little bit, that imitating God and walking in love is going to require effort from us to kind of squeeze out what Jesus has done for us and what he's doing in us. And so let's look at these commands that Paul gives us with this in mind. The first one, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, as we work through these, these first two commands, I want, to, I want to kind of pause for a moment I know I just said we're going to get into them, and we will, but we're going to pause first. I want you to think about about who you are kind of as a person, kind of the the bent of your personality. Like, are you somebody that, that, that tends more towards legalism, right, trying to earn your salvation, or are you somebody that tends more towards license, towards kind of abusing the grace and freedom that you've been shown? So are you somebody that feels like you got to earn God's love? Or are you somebody that's like, of course God loves me. I'm amazing. There's a book called Counsel from the Cross written by Elise Fitzpatrick and Dennis Johnson. And, and they talk about these two categories as the, the sad moralist, those who feel like they have to earn God's love, or the, or the happy moralist, those who, who are, are sure that they have it and they abuse it. And so think about where you're at. And, and honestly, sometimes we're, we're maybe both, or we're, we're one thing in one situation and one thing in another. But, but think about where you are on that spectrum, because that's going to matter as we think about these first two commands, right? Because we need both sides of these statements. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us. And so for the first one, be imitators of God. Like some of you desperately need to rest in the reality that you are a child of God, right? That you are beloved. That's, that's who you are. That's your standing before the Father. He loves you. He cares for you. You imitate him as someone who is already loved by him, not as somebody who imitates him so that you can be loved by him, right? Some of us need to hear that and believe that and rest in that. Some of you desperately need to heed the command. Yes, you are loved. And yes, that is great. But those who love him keep his commands. 
Your status as a beloved child of God doesn't mean that you don't need to imitate him. Right? It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. It means that we're called to bear the family likeness. So the question then is, is what does it mean for us to imitate God? Well, God is faithful, good, gracious, holy, just, kind, loving, merciful, righteous, true, wise. So just, just be all of those things, and then you can check this one off. Right? This is impossible for us. We can never perfectly imitate God. We can never do all of these things or be all of these things on, on this side of eternity. But Paul says, this is the standard to which we strive as beloved children. The reality is that, that growth is difficult. It, it takes time. It's slow. It's incremental. And so recognize that that standard is high and that it's, that it's impossibly high. But also look for, for incremental steps that you can take toward it. And so, for example, God is kind. So for the rest of the day, strive to be kind in all your interactions. Or, or God is just. Try to be just in, in the way you parent your kids. Or, or focus on, on growing in wisdom because God is wise by, by reading the Proverbs. Break that down. Don't just kind of throw your hands up and say, well, like, I can never do that. And so I'm not going to do anything. Right? We've been made new. Peter says we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. So let's be people who imitate God like Paul tells us to. Because we're his beloved children. Because we can bear the family likeness. All right, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Again, we need, we need both sides here. Some of you need to desperately rest in the truth that Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. And notice that these words here are, are past tense. Right? Jesus loved us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't still love us, right? He, he, we're beloved children, verse 1, and then, you know, the whole first half of Ephesians. Jesus loves us. But here the focus is on the fact that he has loved us. What this means is that Jesus' love for you is not based on you walking in love. He loved you already. So quit trying to earn his love by, by what you do by how you walk things out, by how you obey. Quit loving others so that Jesus will love you. Love them because he has and he will forever. On the flip side, some of you need to stop being complacent, resting in the love he has for you and walk that love out towards others. Jesus loved us when, when we hadn't done anything to earn it or deserve it. So stop expecting other people to do something to make themselves worthy of your love. He gave himself for you. It takes sacrifice to walk in love. Stop expecting love to not require anything of you. Jesus has loved us so that we would be able to love others. So let's walk in love. The rest of the commands that, that come in this passage are, are kind of like 
rapid fire ways in which we imitate God or walk in love. And so we're just going to, we're going to walk through them. First, he says that sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Because we're different, these things shouldn't be part of who we are, right? In Jesus, we are saints. We're, we're holy. We should act like it, and we should act like it by, by not even talking about these things, let alone participating in them. It's the same with, with covetousness, right? If we trust who God is, that he's, he's in control, that he's good, then we should trust him that, that we actually have the things we need. I don't need that other thing because if I needed it, God would have given it to me, right? I know that what I have, I have because God has given it, and I can rest in that. Verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, but instead thanksgiving. This is a, this is a surprising contrast here. right? You would maybe expect it to be like, no bad jokes, but, but good jokes. But the flip side is, is thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. And I, and I think that Paul says it this way because, right, a, a crude joke or, or foolish talk or, or filthiness, right, it, it might make someone like smile or laugh in a moment. But, but it's not actually building them up like we talked about last week. Speech should, should build up. But, but thanksgiving, being grateful, encouraging other people to be grateful, like it, it helps people find actual joy in God. Thanksgiving leads to joy in who God is and what he's done for us uh, because it directs our attention off of ourselves and onto him. Directs our attention off of the, the stuff and the gifts that he's given us and back onto him as the giver. All right, it's also the antidote to, to covetousness, which he talked about in verse three. So Paul is kind of like two birds with one stone here, like get rid of bad joking, get rid of covetousness, just be thankful. And why shouldn't these things be named among us? Why shouldn't we, you know, have foolish talk or filth or crude jokes? Well, look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, so people who are worshiping something else rather than God, right? Everyone who does these things, Paul says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Then it keeps going in verses 6 and 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. What we're seeing here is, is the division between the people of God and the, the not people of God. Right? He's already told us in chapter 1 that those of us who are in Christ, we've been blessed with, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then one of those spiritual blessings is that we will share in Christ's inheritance with him. Here, he says those that choose sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness or, or anything else other than Jesus, they, if they, they pick that thing, they forfeit that inheritance because they're not in Christ. Instead, they have the wrath of God coming for them. And Paul says that we must not partner with them. We must not do what they do. Why? Why, why can't we become partners with them? Look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. So we were just like them. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, but now, Paul says, you are light in the world. 
light in the Lord. So, right, praise God. We are different because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us. We aren't darkness anymore. Now we are light in him. So what should we do because he's changed us? What should we do because we're different? Well, we shouldn't be partners with them. Instead, we should walk as children of light. That's the next thing he tells us to do. And then in verse 9, he gives us kind of this, this parenthetical explanation of what the light does in us and through us, what it produces, how that flows out of us. He says, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so, if you want a flowchart or a rubric that you can use in your daily life, here you go. Step one, is it true? If yes, proceed. If no, don't think it or feel it or say it or, or do it. But if it is, is true, move on. Second step, is it right? If it's not right, don't think it or feel it, or say it, or do it. If it is, proceed. Step three, is it good? If not, don't think it, or feel it, or say it, or do it. But if it's all three, proceed. Right? If it's right, and true, and good, it's something that we can do. Now, maybe you're sitting out there, and you're thinking, but, but Dan, it's, it's difficult to know if things are true or good or right. And to that I say, you're right. I agree. And so does Paul. Look at verse 10. Paul says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Knowing what God wants us to do in any given situation is difficult. You know, the Bible is a, is a phenomenal book, and I love it. And because I love it, I've, I've devoted a ridiculous amount of time and money and energy and resources to, to studying it and helping other people study it. But if I had to offer a critique, it would be that it doesn't answer all my questions. It doesn't tell me exactly what I need to do in any specific situation that I'm facing in any moment. I mean, think about how much easier things would, would seem. They wouldn't actually be easier, but they would seem easier if instead of the Bible and the Holy Spirit, God just gave us a magic eight ball. Right? Should I take this job? Should I not take this job? Outlook looks good. All right, like let's, let's move forward, right? It would, it would be easy if, if we could just get the answer. But I think that the reason why God did not do that that way is because if he did, then we would put our faith in the object rather than him. Like God doesn't just want to give us all the answers. He doesn't just want to, to help us in our daily lives. He wants a relationship with us. And it's through a relationship with him that he reveals himself to us. And we begin to learn and know more of what his will is for us. And so we read the Bible to, to know who God is, to know what he's done for us, to know what he wants for us and, and from us. And then we do what Paul says in our daily lives, moment by moment, situation by situation, we try 
to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And notice how much grace is bound up in, in the way Paul says this. Right? He could have used a different word here, a different phrase here. He could have said, know what is pleasing to the Lord. He could have said, do what is pleasing to the Lord. He could have said, be pleasing to the Lord. But he said, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Right? It's, it's not going to be easy. It's, it's going to take effort. And like failure is, is kind of expected and, and baked in. So just try to do it. Try to discern what's pleasing to him. And one of the ways we set ourselves up for success in trying to discern what's pleasing to him is we listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, right? So don't do the things that the sons of disobedience, those who walk in darkness do because you're children of light. So walk in the light. Don't take part in their unfruitful works. They don't do anything good. They don't lead to anything good. They don't produce anything good. They're unfruitful works, so don't participate. Instead, Paul says, expose them. First, let's talk about what this does not mean. Look at verse 12. He says, for it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. So expose it doesn't mean saying, hey, you'll never believe what they did. It doesn't mean that we, we gossip or we, we you know, tell other people about all the things or become a tattletale. Instead, the word here that's, that's translated as expose, it means something like a, a convincing rebuke. Like this is a, a conversation that's happening between a, a follower of Jesus and not a follower of Jesus, where they're calling them out of darkness, convincing them that there is a better way. Right? We expose them by bringing the works of darkness into the light. Look at verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And we expose them by light, by, by the truth of God's word, by the truth of the gospel. Look at the end of verse 13, or 14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. With the truth of the gospel, we call people out of darkness and, and into the light, into Christ's life, into relationship with them, so they're no longer in darkness, but instead they can walk in the light. That's how we expose works of darkness. We call people to faith in Jesus and we demonstrate for them what it looks like to walk as children of light. This is why Paul in verse 15 says to, to look carefully at how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It takes wisdom for us to live our lives in the way that God calls us to. Paul says we have to do this because the days are, are evil, right? The world is still broken. We are still broken. And so walking in a manner worthy of our calling, like he calls us to in Ephesians, it's not going to come easy. It's not going to be simple. And we're going to have to make the best use of time so that we can do this. Because this is important, verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right? This is similar to what he said in verse 10. Like we're, we're working, we're striving, we're, we're, we're putting effort into understanding what God wants from us so that we can live in that way. God wants us to know his will and understand his will so that we can do his will. That's why we need to follow what he says in verse 18. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is another one of those kind of comparisons that seems 
surprising. He says, you know, no bad jokes. Instead, thanksgiving. Don't get drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. But I think what Paul's talking about here is, he's talking about what's, what's consuming us or controlling us or, or compelling. Um, and so, for example, when I was a junior in college, I went to Houston, Texas for an internship. And I lived in this house that could only loosely be described as a house. And while I was there, uh, either in this house, probably in this house, or potentially one of the camps we went to, I got bit by a spider. The doctors think it was a brown brown recluse, which is hard to say, but they don't know for sure. And so uh, what happened is that I got this giant lump on my hip that was very painful, and so I went to the ER. And while I was at the ER, they poked and prodded and did all kinds of things to that giant painful lump on my hip. And then they were like, okay, we know what it is. We know what we got to do now. And so the nurse, or not, not the nurse, the doctor asked the nurse to go get an 18-gauge needle, which at the time I didn't know. I thought like, well, the way she said that and the way that his face was, it's either big or it's small, and I don't know which one. And then she, the, the doctor, she said, like, do you, want, do you want like some anesthetic? And I thought, there's no way that what they're about to do could hurt any more than what they just did. And I was wrong. They came back in and my friend said, oh, that's huge. And then they proceeded to like stick it in my leg and like dig things out with it. And in that moment... I was not Dan. I was pain. All my feelings, all my thoughts, all my actions were just red hot searing pain. I was, I was like, that was it. Like, I don't really remember much of what happened after that other than that it hurt. Drinking too much puts us in a place where we are controlled by something other than ourselves. Where we're no longer in a place where we can accurately understand or accurately do and live out God's will for us. And not just his will for us about alcohol, his will for us about anything, right? It's us giving control over to a substance instead of over to God. That's why Paul, I think, contrasts it with being filled with the Spirit. Because us being full of the Spirit, we're, we're surrendering. We're saying, we're going to do what you want us to do, not what we want to do. Right? The Spirit is going to lead us and guide us, and we're going to submit to that, and we're going to follow. We're going to let ourselves be consumed by the Spirit, instead of by ourselves, or instead of by, in this case, a substance. And then Paul's going to give us some examples. This is, what, this is what he says being full of the Spirit looks like, starting in verse 19. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are the kinds of things that, that believers full of the Spirit do with one another when they're together. They'll worship through music. They'll give thanks always 
and for everything. Notice those two words there, always and for everything. So when should we give thanks? Always. What are the things that we should give thanks for? Everything. This is just closing all the doors for us to escape out from underneath this command. And so when we come together as believers, it should be with hearts of gratitude to God for what he's done for us and to, and, and that, he's, that he's brought us together and given us one another. It should not be with grumbling and complaining. We should give thanks for everything, always, even for things we don't like, even in moments where we don't feel like it, always and for everything giving thanks. Last, we will submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. This is a call here toward mutual submission. We submit to one another. We don't fight for our own ways. We aren't out for ourselves. Instead, we put the interests of others above our own interests. Why should we mutually submit? Out of reverence for Jesus. I think that what Paul is getting at here is that we do this because we recognize that that all of us are under the authority of Jesus. Back in Ephesians 1, Paul said this. He said that Jesus is, is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What this means is that we are a lot closer in authority to one another than we are to Jesus. Right? When we think about kind of authority hierarchies or levels of authority, I think we tend to think that they're like evenly spaced. And so just to kind of use the ones that Paul is going to go into in the next passage, like we tend to think of it as like there's Jesus and then there's husbands and then there's wives, or there's Jesus, and then there's parents, and then there's children, or there's Jesus, and then there's masters, and there's servants. But that's ridiculous. There's Jesus, and then there's husbands, and then there's wives, like right here by them. There's Jesus, there's parents, there's children. There's Jesus, there's masters, there's servants. We are so much closer to one another than we are to Jesus. Paul Tripp says to to parents, he says, you are way more like your children than unlike your children. We are much more like them than we are like Jesus. That's not how we think about ourselves, but that's reality. We can submit to one another because we know how far under Jesus' authority we all are together. And so we can mutually submit because the Spirit is controlling us, because we're submitting to the Spirit as we submit to one another. So in this passage, Paul is is calling us together to to imitate God, to, to live in a way where we begin to look more and more and more like someone who is part of the family of God. We are beloved children. And so we should live in a way that we bear the family likeness. 
He calls us to, to walk in love as Christ loved us. Christ has loved us. He is the, the model and the motivation and the means for which we love other people. We don't do that to earn his love. We do it because we haven't. And so we can walk in his love. And to do that, to, to imitate him, to, to walk in love, it's going to require effort. It's going to require striving to get that good news that's in here, out here. He gives us some specific ways to do that. We need to try to discern what is pleasing to him and live like it. And so today, as we transition to the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to do, to do two things. The first thing is, is remember. Right? The Lord's Supper exists so that we remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we can celebrate that reality together. His, his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us because of who he is and what he's done for us. We are beloved children. We are loved and he gave himself for us. The second thing I want you to do is confess. Think about those two statements. Be imitators of God as beloved children and, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And ask the Spirit to, to, to fill you and to help you know like which, which side of those statements you fall short on. Are you struggling to rest in the reality of what he's done for you? Are you struggling to, to walk out that reality in obedience? Confess that to him. Ask the Spirit to, to help you like, turn that corner, to embrace both sides together as you walk in love towards other people, imitating God as one loved by him. So let's pray together and, and then celebrate his death on our behalf. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to, to bring us back to move us from, from being children of wrath to beloved children. Thank you that you, because of Jesus, have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And because of that, we, we don't have to walk in darkness anymore. We don't have to participate in it anymore. But we can walk as children of light. And so now we ask that you would, you would send your spirit to, to help us to respond to your word. That you would help us to, to both rest in the goodness of what you've done for us. And also to walk it out in a way that is for your glory and for our good and the good of others. Help us to imitate you and to walk in love as your children that you love. In your name we pray. Amen.